Family resemblances. Uh, people say I look like my father and I sound like him. Uh, people who've met Karen's mum will know how much they look alike. Uh, but of course, there are things that are much more important to pass on to your children than your looks, like character, like an example of following Jesus, like we heard from Kerry this morning. And that's the issue in this next part of John's letter, how true children of God should bear a family resemblance in their character. God's children are like him. When God makes us his children, he passes on certain characteristics. And that's how we can know if we belong to him uh, or if we don't belong to him. Uh, Do you remember the issue? There are false teachers who are saying all sorts of things to the people John's writing to, like how they know God, how they have fellowship with him, and how they're in the light, and, and even that they were saying that they were without sin. But John says the way to tell whether they're telling the truth is to look at their life, to be a fruit inspector, because their deeds will show whether their words are true or not. Remember last week, chapter 2, we saw John's three tests. Uh, First, the false teachers are those who don't obey God's commands. They don't walk in the light. Second, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And third, they don't love the brothers. Obedience, belief, love. Uh, They say they know God, but their life, their doctrine, says something different. Today we're going to see a little more of the same. Uh, from chapter 2, verse 28, but we're zooming in, we're focusing on obedience. In particular, how if you're really one of God's children, you'll bear the resemblance of your heavenly Father. Uh, Do you see it there in verse 29? Have a look at it. Verse 29 of chapter 2, John says, If you know that he, that is God, is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. In other words, God is righteous, God is morally upright, he's pure, he's good. So it follows that people who are born of God will also be like that, they will do what's right. They will bear the family resemblance. Just like you expect peaches to come from a peach tree, just like you expect Siamese kittens to come from a Siamese cat. Those who are born of God will bear the family resemblance. Same thing again, down into chapter 3, verse 7. God's children are like him, like father, like son. See there in verse 7? Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he, that is God, is righteous. He who does what's right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Same thing again, verse 9 and 10. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So God is sinless. It follows that his children will bear that likeness. That's Paul's, uh, John's point. I wonder if you notice the unusual way John describes, in verse 9, how we're born of God. God's seed remains in him. 
I hope you noticed it. I hope you're paying attention enough to think, oh, I'm not sure I've heard that too often before. We normally think about conversion, how someone becomes a Christian, in, in, a, in a pretty transactional way, I think. We, we say, like communication and response. We, we say someone hears the gospel message, they trust what they hear, they repent of their sin, God forgives them, makes them his child, a guilty verdict is replaced with an innocent one, there's a change in status, but not necessarily in nature. That, that's how we often think about uh, someone becoming a Christian. But John says, John wants us to think about becoming a Christian like, can I say this, a divine insemination. God's seed is planted in you. That's really what the idea of being born from God, I guess, is pointing to, isn't it? Even if it is just a metaphor. And I think John picks that idea of God's seed growing in you or being planted in you because he wants to emphasise we should have a change in nature when we become a Christian. Our basic character changes from earthly to heavenly, from flesh to spiritual. God's righteous DNA has been put into us, in a sense. You've been reborn by seed from God. You will have his nature increasingly. Now, if that's you, verse 9 says, you cannot go on sinning. Verse 6 says, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, we'll just stop there. If you've been listening at all for the last few minutes, I'm guessing you've started to see a slight problem in what we've just said. You've heard the things I've said and maybe you've followed the logic, God is righteous, we're his children, therefore we're righteous. But I wonder if you've also remembered some of those things that you said and did in the last week. And you wonder how the two ideas fit together. I know I certainly wonder that. I can certainly think about my week because I'm someone who's been a Christian for coming up to 40 years, but I keep on sinning. There are some things I'm doing okay at, but there's other things that I just keep stumbling into. And I'm guessing you're probably the same. So does this mean I don't know Jesus? At least on face value, those verses seem to suggest that. Let me give you a couple of answers. The first thing to note is that John is not teaching perfectionism. He's not teaching perfectionism. That is, that the Christian will be perfect and never sin. He knows we'll sin. He's already said it, remember, back in chapter 1. In fact, he said, anyone who says that they don't sin is actually a false teacher. So back in chapter 1, verse 8, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. So we've somehow got to put that verse together with what he's saying here in chapter 2 and 3 about how someone born of God doesn't go on sinning. Uh, one commentator says, uh, we must not forget what John has already taught us, no Christian is sinless. Uh, we must balance that truth 
with the equivalent understanding that no Christian is a habitual sinner either. And I think that last phrase is a helpful one, a habitual sinner. John is thinking more about the general direction of a Christian's life rather than perfection. The general direction rather than perfection. For example, did you notice how he describes the Christian life in verse 2? What we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. See, John's realistic. John knows that he and his readers are not perfect yet. But there is a desire in that verse, isn't there? There's a desire to be better than we are, to not be where we are at the moment. And I think that's evidence of genuine Christian belief, genuine Christian standing. We're not there yet, but we want to be there. We want to be more like Jesus than we are now. One day we'll get there. Uh, the translation I think we've got in verse 6, I think is actually pretty helpful. It says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. It's trying to get to the, to the, the meaning of, of the Greek tense. No one who lives in, in um, Jesus, in God, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin knows Jesus. John's test here about obedience is about the general direction of your life. And false teachers are failing that test. Their general direction is away from Jesus. It's veering further and further away, not getting closer and closer to. But for John's readers, and hopefully for you, if you've got a desire to be following Jesus rather than the world, if you are seeing change, if you're seeing progress in your life, if there's a gradual growth in godliness and prayerfulness, in patience, in humility, if there's a desire to be living like Jesus, even if you don't always see that through, if there's sorrow and repentance when you fail, then you can have every reason to be confident uh, that you're passing John's test. It's like a toddler in a room full of strangers. Her father's on the other side of the room. The father calls the toddler's name and the little child looks up and sees her father and starts walking towards him. Someone else might call her. She might stop. She might look around. She might even stumble and fall. But then she'll get up and she'll keep heading towards her father. Because she's a child of her father, that's the direction she's heading in. And that's the Christian life. God's children may stumble and fall. We may look in another direction. We may stray off track. But we're headed towards him and we're listening for his voice. That's what we want to do. We're not there yet. We're troubled when we stumble. But one day we will be. That's John's test. It's what separates false Christians from true ones. First point, it's not perfectionism. Second point, John's letter, all these, these verses, they've got the flavour of celebration rather than condemnation. The flavour is celebration, not condemnation. His aim is not for his readers to be drowning in guilt or doubt. Uh, he wants them to recognise their birthright. Uh, who is the one who's given them birth and to celebrate it and to rejoice and to live up to they're being born again. Have a listen to the tone of chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us 
that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. John is sure of it. There's celebration, not condemnation. Or jump back into chapter 2. Do you remember how he described his readers? I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've known him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. John has run his test of obedience over his readers and they're passing with flying colours. His purpose is that they celebrate. He doesn't want to condemn them. Remember, these are tests that the readers are to apply on others whose salvation they're doubting. Anyway, let's move on. John has given us his identification tests, how you should identify who's a child of God, who isn't. So what do we do with it, this test of obedience? Uh, Well, the first question, uh, the first answer is, uh, I guess, to ask the question of yourself. Does this describe you? Are you following after Jesus? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you know God? Are you his child? If you think, no, I don't think so, I'm not sure that is me, uh, then the first thing you need to do today is to to accept God's offer, to recognise your sin, to confess it, to claim God's promise that he'll forgive your sin. Uh, Jesus is, God is faithful and just and will forgive and purify. God promises he'll do that. He promises to put his seed in you, to make you his child, to give you his nature so that you can obey, so that you'll want to obey. Uh, Do that first and you can know the joy that John's describing. Many of us have done that. Uh, So what's next? Well, John would say we need to be dwelling in Jesus, abiding, remaining, Uh, All English words that describe the same word here in Greek. We're to dwell in Jesus. It's the goal that we'll get to at the end. It's the path we travel on as we get there as well. Uh, Just have a look back at the end of chapter 2. From verse 26, uh, he's warning the genuine Christians about the false ones. And he says in verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And then he talks about how Christians have God's Holy Spirit living in them. God joins himself spiritually to you. It's the seed that gives you his nature as his child. Uh, Verse 27, John calls it the anointing, which just means God pours his spirit onto you. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, Remain in him. Remain in him. In other words, keep joined to God. Do what you can to listen to him, to follow him, to love him, to obey him. That's what it comes down to in the paragraph that comes just before that, from verse 24. See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. That's a tiny little verse, but boy, there's some stuff packed into that verse. Do all you can to keep the message you heard about Jesus front and centre of your thinking, central to your life. It's all there in the Bible. That's why we keep 
coming back in our church to reading the Bible, to meeting together around the Bible. See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. Don't get distracted by other things. Remind each other of those words. Sing them, read them, pray them, listen to them on podcasts, watch them on YouTube. That's the way to remain in the Son and in the Father is to get, let his words remain in us or dwell, uh, let his words dwell in us. It's so important for John because remaining in Jesus, being connected to Jesus, is the way we make it to the end. Uh, from verse 28 he says, Just as it has taught you, remain in him, and now, dear children, continue in him. It's actually the same word again. And now, dear children, remain, dwell, abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Stay stuck to Jesus. That's the way to be unashamed when he does return. Well, Dwelling in Jesus, it's such a big part of how John understands being a Christian because he heard it from Jesus himself. Back in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples and he said to them, Remain in me and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way you can bear fruit, the only way you can live an obedient, godly life as a Christian is to be abiding in Jesus, to to be remaining joined to him, to make Jesus your dwelling place, to be joined to him like a branch is joined to a vine. John, thinking about these sort of verses for years, uh, puts it like this back in, back in his letter, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who lives or dwells, it's that same word again, no one who dwells in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps their thoughts fixed on him, who walks with him, who does things in his strength, for his glory, following his example. That's what it means to dwell in Jesus. Do that and you won't continue to sin. You'll bear the fruit that comes from Jesus the vine. If you're not connected to him, you can't bear fruit. You'll wither and die. Righteous obedience is impossible to produce just from your own resources. The false teachers can't do it. They're not connected to Jesus. And so the next command this passage teaches us is if we're remaining connected to Jesus, we need to bear fruit. We need to recognise that God's planted his seed in us and we should strive to be like him. You don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. You don't have to settle for sin. You don't need to rationalise your failures. Oh, that's just me. That's just my weakness. You don't have to do that. You don't have to jump too quickly back to the promise of forgiveness for your sin. You've got God's seed in you, God's righteous seed. Take seriously what verse 9 says. Look at it again. It says, No one born of God continues to sin because God's seed remains in him. And then it says, He cannot go on sinning. 
Now, that's one way to translate it. In, in my view, a better way to translate it is God's seed remains in him. He is able not to sin. He's able not to sin. Now, that's actually different from he's not able to sin. He's able to not sin. We've got God's powerful, eternal, holy seed in us. We have the ability, not always, not consistently, not never again, we've got the ability to not sin. It's possible for us to follow Jesus as we should, to have pure motives, to have pure thoughts, to have loving actions, not always, but we can do it for some period of time. We can obey. Let's pursue that because we're God's children. He has put his spiritual DNA in us. That's our new nature. A third thing we can get from this passage, we should strive to be holy because we're preparing for the final day. Get ready for that day. Uh, Be righteous now so you will measure up then. That's the argument John makes at the start of chapter 3. He says God's lavished his love on you. He's made you his children. We're his children, but we're not grown up yet. And he says in verse 2, what we will be has not yet been made known. Does that mean we just give up because we're not there yet? No. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the sure future for us. We'll be like Jesus. But notice how that vision affects us today. Look at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. We strive to be holy and pure now, so that we'll be suitably dressed on that day, so that we'll measure up, so we won't be ashamed. Jesus' plan, Jesus' certain goal for us is perfection. So when we meet him, we want to be well on the way towards that. It's the hope of that meeting, that transformation, that drives us on to obedience today. It's just contradictory for a Christian to be hopeful of that meeting and yet still delight in delicious sins today. It doesn't make sense. Two months until the Olympic Games. Imagine an athlete who's been selected for the Olympic Games. She's Australian champion. She's carrying the hopes and dreams of Australia. Imagine if she decided now that all the hard work's been done and she could just relax. She could eat hamburgers and ice cream and skip training. After all, she's got a ticket. She's never going to do that. She'd be ashamed. She'd be disgraced. She'd be shown up uh, when she made it to the Olympic Games. She wouldn't measure up to her identity. Uh, She would want to live up to the expectation. And that's what it's like with our future identity. It's contradictory for a Christian to hope for Christ's return and yet still walk regularly in disobedience. Children of God... Bear the family resemblance. Don't fight against it. It's natural. Let's embrace it. Let's improve it. It used to annoy me growing up when people said, oh, you're just like your father. But the comment we should all long to hear is this one, isn't it? You're just like your heavenly father. I'd love to hear that one. You're just like your heavenly father. 
just like him because we're dwelling in Jesus. We're looking forward to our future perfection, our future reward. We're striving to be growing in obedience and in the family likeness of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there's uh, some tough um, ideas in this passage, some challenging ones, uh, but at the same time there's, there's great comfort. Uh, you don't leave us without resources. You give us your spirit. Uh, you give us commands. Uh, you guide us. You give us uh, a, a vine that we can be connected to as branches. You produce fruit in us. Uh, we pray that you would give us the desire and the will to be able to follow you, to be like Jesus more and more each day as we long for that day. Amen.